Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. This interview with Zoya Patel originally aired in December 2018. We talked to her about feminism, her migrant experience, and her debut, No Country Woman, a memoir of not belonging. In the almost two years since, she's stayed very busy writing for multiple publications. Zoya has also started her own podcast with Yen Erickson called Margin Notes, about life on the margins, chapter by chapter. Zoya was also a judge for the 2020 Stella Prize and will be the chair of the 2021 judging panel. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Joining us this week is a writer and editor who has recently released a memoir exploring race, religion and feminism. She's also the founding editor of Feminazi and based in Canberra. Welcome to Better Words, Zoya Patel. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just get straight into it. And for people who aren't familiar with No Country Woman, why did you want to write this book? Sure, that is a good question. And it's one that I've had a lot of opportunities to think about while I've been kind of doing the um, the book promotion tour because I realized pretty soon after I'd finished the book that it wasn't even like I was driven by a particular goal. It was almost like I had to write this book. Like every time I went to try and write about something else or another topic that interested me or even fiction, I just kept coming back to these issues around identity um, and race and feminism. And I got to the point where I realized that part of what I needed to explore to be able to free myself up to write about those other topics that I wanted to was this continual push-pull that I have with my Australian identity and my Fijian Indian identity. And I think what's often missed about that, definitely in other kind of sources of media that I've consumed, is the gap that exists not just between mainstream Australia and migrant cultures, but also within migrant cultures. And that's really what I try and get out um, through No Country Woman. So I guess I wanted to write a book that helped me figure a lot of that out. And I think that's quite evident in the way that I write. But I also wanted to have something available for people like me who might not see themselves represented in the more traditional narrative of of immigration that we have in popular culture, uh, but at the same time might still feel a bit lost in sea about their identity the way that I always have. I think that sums it up perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. (laughs) It's such a deep and like really personal reflection um for me it felt like you know I was just sitting down having a chat with you really like it was really wonderful and I felt like I really knew you even though obviously until now we've never spoken (laughs) and a lot of that involves you know your family and your culture because while it's your story obviously your family is just as much a part of that and like talking about your sisters and their seemingly stronger connection to their heritage and and how you felt different and stuff how have your family like reacted to that how did they feel 
you know, what did they say when they read the book? Yeah, it was quite challenging writing the book, knowing that they would be reading it and being really aware of the fact that a lot of the ways that I feel about our experiences in Australia and our experiences balancing our cultural and religious influences um, are really different from the way that everyone else in my family might feel about them. So before I even started writing the book, when I knew that there was a chance that I'd want to write about these kinds of topics, I kind of flagged it with my parents and, you know, they reacted in different ways. My dad is always like, just try anything. It's worth it. You know, we'll figure it all out. My mom was a little bit more concerned about what that would actually look like. And as I write in the book, it's actually very unusual to share this much of our personal lives and our culture. Like you just don't talk about this stuff. So I think more than being concerned about anything that I would write, it's just an alien concept to even have our personal lives shared in a public forum at all for us. So I had to kind of unpack that a bit much earlier on in the process. Um, And then I actually just went ahead and wrote the book and I didn't even let them see it or read it until it was bound as an actual book, which most people think is like a really risky decision to take. And in retrospect, it probably was. But at the time, it just felt like the most natural thing to me was to write it in my own words and get across everything that I felt and then let them read it so that they knew that it's not trying to represent their experiences. It's very much my interpretation of our shared lives. So when I did finally give it to my parents, um, first they bickered over who would get to read it first. Um, and then I think my dad like stole it from my mom's bedside drawer and like went to the spare room and stayed up all night and read the whole thing. And he loved it. He was quite confronted by aspects of it, I think. I don't think that they had a clear understanding of how much I grappled with my identity growing up. Like they knew that there were things that didn't always work for me, but I don't think they understood how integral that struggle was to my experiences as a teenager. So he really enjoyed it, but yeah, definitely found that he learned a lot from it in that sense. And my mom was the same. I think for her, it also brings together a lot of our shared experiences and kind of celebrates that, uh, which she probably wasn't expecting. And in that way, it was, it was quite an emotional read for everyone in my family. My siblings were much the same. And I feel like it's really brought us closer together in a way, like part of the same cultural um, attitudes that don't allow us to talk about this stuff publicly means that we haven't even really talked as a family about some of the, you know, positive experiences that we've shared, but also some of the more negative experiences, like shared experiences of racism. And since the book has come out, we've started talking about this stuff a lot more. So I think it's had a really positive impact on my family more so than I could have expected. That's amazing. And I think it's really interesting the way you described that you wrote it yourself and it's your experience and it's your point of view because what you do often hear about, you know, memoirs and nonfiction and things like that is that people will check with this friend or their sister or their mum reads it first and, like, their mum says, oh, no, take that out or, you know, all these different things when really it is your point of view. So you know how can your parents or your siblings or anyone else in your family really contribute to that yeah and I think it's also fundamentally about how you define memoir so I think people often conflate memoir and biography in a way that really annoys me because the reason why I'm drawn to writing memoir and probably why it also annoys me when people say oh but you're so young like how could you write a memoir (laughs) you know I'm like 
my age doesn't matter because memoir isn't a life story. It isn't about all of my experiences and the wisdom that I've gleaned from them. Memoir should be about using personal experience to explore and extrapolate out into a broader cultural or social issue. And I think that's why it's powerful is because often we need personal experience and we need to kind of make something more localized and create a better perspective on it so that people can be opened up to experiences that they might not otherwise have and therefore look at things that they wouldn't otherwise feel any kind of connection to. So the reason why I wanted the book to be so clearly my experiences was because I don't think you can talk about race and identity and have my experiences in any way relate to my family's experiences, really. Because a lot of my book is saying we're actually individuals and we can't be grouped together by the fact that we're Fijian Indian Australian. And I think it's actually really fascinating how different my siblings are from me, even though we've grown up with the exact same kind of um, circumstances, because to me that shows the diversity that exists within diverse groups. And it's a diversity that we don't often allow. So it's really easy for people to want my story to be representative of more stories like mine, because we usually only create space for like one or two diverse voices in the, in the mainstream. And I don't want that to be the case. I want it to be really clear that this is just my story and that we should be making space for you know hundreds of other migrants, whether they're the same generation or not, to talk about their experiences, which might be really different. I think that's wonderful and like some of my favorite parts of the book were when you talked about um, Yasmin and her approach to her religion as opposed to yours and the fact that there is that idea that there should be like a homogenized voice of Muslim women rather than each individual opinion. Yeah I think the Yasmin thing is something that I struggled with when I was choosing to put that in the book because even while I'm critiquing this idea that we're not allowed to have differences of opinion within minority groups and still respect each other and support each other generally. I was still worried that people would misconstrue the way that I was trying to construct that argument as somehow being an attack against Yasin, and I don't feel that at all. Like, I think it's amazing that she has had such a positive experience with Islam, that she feels so strongly in her faith, that she feels able to practice it and still inhabit her Australian identity in a way that you know, I really couldn't. And I think that that's the difficult thing that I found about it is that I really don't feel like there is space for the two stories to exist at the same time, at least not in the way that we create space in Australia right now. And that's not to say that, you know, Yasmin's experience isn't valid and interesting and shouldn't be heard, but it's saying that we then say, okay, well, that's all the spots that we had for Muslim women to speak. Like, tick, we've got Yasmin. I guess that's it then. And it's something that comes up again and again, like, when Maxine Beneva Clark's amazing book, The Hate Race, came out um, a couple of years ago, I had a few different friends of mine who were people of colour, who were also writers, who said something along the lines of, oh my gosh, Maxine wrote my book. And I was like, well, no, she didn't. She wrote her book. And there's nothing to say that just because there's been one book written about race and identity in Australia, that there can't be more. Like, we literally allow dozens of old white men to write about the war. I think we can have like more than one brown person talking about being Australian. 
I don't know why we don't allow that multitude to exist when it so clearly does. Oh, I know. That's such a good point. And I mean, it just kind of comes back to what you said before. Like everyone's experience is different, which means that everyone has their own individual story. So no, she didn't steal the stories (laughs) and neither did you because your your experience is different than everyone else's. And like if your sisters wrote a book, it would be completely different and you grew up in the same family, which like you said is amazing and it goes to show how it doesn't, oh, there was this wonderful bit in your book and I was reading it in bed and I didn't like write it down on my phone, but where you were talking about (laughs) how everyone is so diverse and it really doesn't matter what your background is because every person's different and I wish I could think of the wording now because it was just, I read it and I was like, oh yes, it's such a brilliant way to put it. Oh, thank you. I don't even remember that bit. Um, talking about the book where I'm like, huh, I did write that, didn't I? <laughs> uh, and it's interesting because so much of the book is talking about, like you can kind of see me grappling with a lot of these issues on the page as I kind of work it out. And I was actually having coffee with a friend today who was saying, do you worry that your opinion will change? And I was like, my opinion has already changed. There are definitely things where I'm like, you know, I still think that's true, but I guess I think about it a bit, a bit differently now or Or maybe like one day I'll feel differently about that thing. And I think that's actually kind of exciting. I love that these, you know, processes and these concepts don't have to be fixed in time. And I'm actually quite enjoying unpicking it, even though now it's all like in print. Um, I hope that readers also kind of unpick it and, and see it as something that's kind of a living process rather than me saying like it's not my manifesto for how everyone should talk about race in Australia I think that part of what's enjoyable about having these conversations is that they're still relatively new and we have this opportunity to like nut it all out together um actually Veronica Roth said something similar at Brisbane Writers Festival about there there are definitely things she would change in Divergent but that's what she wrote at the time and that's kind of a a marker I guess of who she was at 20 and um, I think now I haven't actually read any of Roxane Gay's work yet but from what I understand she's written about I guess how her views have changed since uh, Bad Feminist was released Mm -hmm. and so I Mm -hmm. think it's totally valid to to have that as a marker of how you felt in time and actually like it's it's quite a special thing to be able to look back on this wonderfully written book and be like yeah I thought that way then yeah you have and, something and in print. print. You have something in print that represents what you thought at a certain point in time, and that's pretty cool. Even having the opportunity to to share these thoughts and have them interrogated by people who I will never meet and I'll never have the opportunity to be part of those conversations is both kind of terrifying but also really humbling. And I think what I love about where we are right now with publishing in Australia, but also I think internationally is we're allowing books to have that sort of lifespan. I think we're really starting to blur the lines between what we think of as kind of like higher literature and, you know, more fast-moving commercial work. And we're letting things have a life beyond the page where we can keep interrogating these ideas and they might change in time so that when you do read Bad Feminist, you don't have to read it in isolation. You can read Bad Feminist and you can read what Roxane Gay has now said about Bad Feminist, you know, years later, and you can, you know, watch the the television interviews and you can read the reviews and you can listen to the podcast. And that's kind of amazing. I can't think of a better time to be publishing work 
um, or to really be reading work either. Yeah, we are so lucky, mm. especially in, in Australia where we have access to so much amazing literature as well and, yeah. and so many different opinions and different news sources and stuff like that. We are super lucky. Oh, I also wanted to say your parents really sound awesome from the book. Like they sound <laughs> super cool and just amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I actually, um, there was a period of time when, I can't remember if it was after the book had come out and during the publicity or I know that was also a period of time when I first started spending time with my agent, Grace, from Curtis Brown. We were kind of driving around Melbourne meeting publishers and my dad kept coming up in conversation. And, you know, by this point, she'd read a couple of the essays uh, that I was thinking of for the book and also a novel that I'd written beforehand that touches on a lot of the same themes. And so all these stories about my dad kept coming up and she kept asking about him. And I got to the point where I had to be like, Grace, you cannot sign my father. Like, my father cannot have the same agent as me. Like, I know he sounds fascinating. And I promise you he would write a book if someone offered him the chance to. But, like, please don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm all for that. I oh, want your dad to write a book. Because so <laughs> they came to my launch in Canberra. And my family hasn't actually seen me do any of the public speaking that I do quite regularly or kind of see me in that in that space before. And I think they were, like, A, shocked by how many people were there. And I'd reserved them like seats up the front and my two sisters were there. My brother lives in Melbourne, so he couldn't make it, but he came to a Melbourne one. And my dad like loves that kind of stuff. And my sisters are pretty comfortable. My mom can be a bit socially anxious. So I was quite worried about her, but there was this great moment where someone in the audience asked a question about whether I had to be brave to write about these topics. And I just said something like, no, I don't think so. I think the people who had to be brave were my parents. My parents had to be really brave to come to a new country with four children, to leave behind everything that they know because they're compelled to, because they know that they can't access the same opportunities and the same circumstances in the country where they feel the most at home. And I'm kind of off on this, like, totally on my high horse being like, my parents deserve a medal. And I glance over, my mom's like crying. And I was like, that is all I wanted was to make my mom cry happy tears. Like... <laughs> I was like, goal achieved. But ever I wanted to talk to them, and I couldn't think of anything worse for my mother. Um, I just don't think that she would enjoy that at all. My dad, on the other hand, was like, you know, handing out business cards. I did have some people after the launch say to me, like, was your dad okay? He just looked like really serious. And I had to be like, look, he has resting, disappointed father face. Like his face, his face just automatically goes into like disappointed Indian father. Like, but that's not what he is thinking. It's really funny getting older. And I think this is universal where you go from finding your parents like deeply embarrassing to realizing who they are as people and starting to have like a real affection for them in a way that's like more peer-to-peer -peer and less about parent-child. I'm actually really enjoying that at the moment. And I do think my book has helped with that because we have gone through a lot in terms of managing the ways in which I've definitely stepped away from our kind of cultural expectations. And that hasn't always been an easy path, but I feel like the book, now that they haven't, they've had an opportunity to see where I've been coming from and, and a lot of the thought processes and the influences that have gone into the decisions that I've made. So it's like they feel like they can be proud of me now without having to fear what I might actually think or without having to feel defensive about the choices that I've made as if they reflect on, you know, my family. I think in that way, the book has actually been this really wonderful tool for us to come together a bit more. That's, that's so, so awesome. Yeah, that's really nice. And I did want to ask you about the book. So we've, you know, kind of discussed, you know, the 
affected the themes or whatever on your family but how did you find actually writing it a lot of people who've read the book who know me have said you obviously went through a lot of kind of ups and downs as a teenager when grappling with these issues it must have been hard to go back to that in some ways it was it can be really sad for me to remember how confused I was as an adolescent and you know I kept journals in those times and I think everyone cringes when they read their teenage journals a thousand but I actually just feel deeply sad for this girl who really felt trapped between these two different cultures like I really didn't feel like I could have both I felt very strongly that I wouldn't be accepted into the artistic communities that I wanted to be part of and you know the parts of Australian life that I yearned for while also being expected to have quite a traditional Indian Muslim life and you know without having ever spoken to my parents about it at the time I assumed that they wouldn't accept the two things in um, which ended up not being the case, which is great. But definitely writing the book forced me to go back to that a lot. And that was difficult in some ways. But I think what really helped was I wasn't in Australia at the time. So I wrote pretty much the whole book in Scotland where my partner and I were on, you know, that kind of classic gap year thing that Australian young people do, making the most of the two-year visa. Um, you know, it ended up being shorter than two years because of, of the book coming out. But I think that's a good reason to cut a trip short. But being so far away actually really helped me have a bit of clarity and not physically seeing my family in that time was good as well. Whilst I really missed them, I think it gave me a chance to try and put myself into their points of view a bit more and unpick some of the things that I took for granted. You know, I think a lot of the book is me trying to understand what it would have been like for my parents to come to Australia and as a result of that, why they cling so much more strongly to our cultural traditions than I do. And I think having the distance made the writing of that, you know, much, much easier. I also think writing essays, it almost feels like cheating. It didn't feel like writing a whole book because I can finish an essay and be like, well, that's done. And I'd like reward myself with a piece of cake or a scone and like that was the end of that. Um, whereas, Whereas, you know, writing a whole book, it feels like the commitment required is probably deeper. I felt like the book just kind of happened um, in between all these essays that I was writing. It made it made for a really good like um, reading experience too. Like it's quite easy to read, and I think the goal is always for it to be easy to read. And I think also because I talk a lot about other writers that I admire and things that I've read, and I was always conscious that that could be really boring. Um, so I've been really relieved that most people have said that it's been yeah, it's been a relatively easy read, considering that I'm talking about issues that aren't always easy for people to read and you know I know you mentioned earlier um Michelle when we were talking before we started recording how it can feel a bit strange sometimes having to acknowledge you know like I'm a white girl and like I haven't had these experiences but I think what I really noticed from the responses that I've had to the book is most people have a experience of feeling like an outsider or a minority no matter what that is from you know like whether that's from a different experience that you have of it from where you live whether it's just from being into stuff that you didn't feel like you know the majority of the people at your high school were into I think that sense of feeling like you're always a little bit on the outskirts is a little bit more universal than just race and it's been pretty amazing realizing that people can connect to the book and not just the worst thing for me would have been if people read the book and just felt either guilty or alienated because I do talk about structural racism a lot and I think I try really hard to make it clear that that's not about individuals it's about systems and so actually to hear that you know 
a white reader found it an easy read makes me really happy. And I, I think it's so interesting though that you say that there are experiences everyone can relate to because I, I do I do feel like that. Like my my teenage years, like well, oh woe is me. Um, yes, privileged I know. white girl. But um, everyone like, still feels alone I felt or like so an out of place. Yeah, or excluded. I was or, like yeah. I'm like this fat anxious mess and no like I just yeah. I felt so alone and I felt I went to a private school but I felt really out of place because my dad was a taxi yeah. driver who drove nights I so, really yeah. think that like economic inequality is one of the single biggest issues that we have right now that is being co-opted by you know far-right politics to just piggyback onto what is ultimately like racist rhetoric that you know people like Trump like to use but it's something that I tried to write about a lot was this idea that actually when I'm talking about racism, the reason why I'm talking about structures is because I think that racism is often used as a tool to like reinforce class systems and economic inequalities that are, that are bad for everyone. And racism just becomes a way of creating a scapegoat when actually, you know, it, it's absolutely inconceivable to me that we have such high rates of poverty in Australia you know we're a country with a relatively small population we should be able to do better and yet you know your story isn't that dissimilar to other people that I know especially in regional areas like where I grew up and you know where I went on that bizarre Harmony Ambassador tour that I write about where you know we're shipped around New South Wales to spread the word of racial equality when really like what we were doing was going to places where these kids had way less opportunities than we had. And often we were speaking at public schools where we knew that the demographic was generally your kind of lower middle class to working class. And I just don't think they had any interest in hearing from me at that point, a very middle class Canberran from a pretty nice public school with every kind of possible privilege at that point. You know, what did they really want to hear from me about other than me standing up there and saying, I'm brown, that's not so bad. Like, you know, please don't be racist. I think like to me, difference is about so much more than race and it's about more than gender. And I don't think that we talk about it in as nuanced a way as we need to, because I'm tired of creating more lines between people. I'm really more interested in trying to get rid of those lines a little bit. And I think that's the thing that I, I struggle with now, even like looking back on the book, sometimes I think to myself, have I just created another way to point out difference by focusing so much on the things that make me different? Or will this eventually be a tool for bringing people together, which I guess is all that I can really hope. Yeah, look, I hope it's the, the latter. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely the latter, but that was very well said. Yeah, And I... I found that too like when when you discuss um your vegetarianism as well and the fact that um even being able to do that or to be able to have a pet is such a privilege that so many other countries and so many other people in other countries don't have because their Mm -hmm. relationship to animals is is based purely on the the practical sense and um the the bit that really got me was when you wrote about how um you were visiting like family in india and you didn't eat any of the meat but your mum was like they they don't buy meat for themselves they bought this um for for us to make sure that um their guests had meat because it was seen as such a privilege to be able to eat that and i was just like wow like we have no idea Yeah. yeah and you know i had no idea i still remember at that point being like I don't understand why they can't just 
go to the supermarket and like buy some meat. Like I honestly, at that point, I genuinely didn't understand it. And the other thing I didn't understand was a lot of those families had like chickens and goats that they had. And I was like, why wouldn't they just kill one of these animals? Like, obviously at that point, I strongly disagreed with the concept of killing any animal, but I was confused by that. And it didn't occur to me that for many people, their lives are actually about constantly sacrificing and constantly putting the goal of making money to just support their families ahead of the immediate pleasures of say eating chicken for dinner. Like they had to keep those chooks so that they could have the eggs that they could sell. And it was that like hand to mouth kind of lifestyle that I had never visit visualized before. Like I'd never seen that and I didn't understand it. And I think it was really important that I saw it at that point in my life because I could have become a very kind of boring high horse vegan type if I hadn't had the opportunity to get a pretty strong kick to my perspective that made me realize that you just can't judge other countries and other people really for the choices that they make until you understand the full picture because it was really easy for me it's even easy for me now to be a vegetarian because I can afford all of the overpriced soy products you know whereas realistically like of course homeless people eat a high rate of McDonald's because what are they meant to afford what can you buy these days for like less than five dollars that you can actually eat and consume and I think that that to me coming back to that constant intersectional approach is really important um, and it's something that I do a lot which is trying to look at everything through the lens of not just race and not just gender but also inequality in all of the different ways that that exists. Yeah I think intersectionality is really the magic word there yeah. isn't it? We have a real cultural trope in Australia of making everything highly individualized so you know, we're always talking about people like pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and anyone can make something of themselves and it's the hard workers who get ahead and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's really just like a series of fairy tales that we tell children that makes them feel like it's always their fault if they can't get ahead. Whereas we're not actually talking about the fact that like the single figure, single biggest indicators of a child's success are the economic wealth of their parents because that means that they will probably have the ability to go home and do their homework and have support in doing that and, you know, be encouraged to do well in school as opposed to going home and probably having to help out around the farm that they might live on or in their parents' small business if that's what's happening or worse. Like if you live in a situation where you've had generational unemployment, that is something that will continue to occur. Like that is a, that's an inherited issue. And it's not something that is a result of laziness. And it's not something that's a result of just an unwillingness to work. It's systemic. And I just think that economic inequality is still the biggest issue that we have in Australia. We just don't talk about it enough. And I've always been really driven by feminism and I'm really driven by um, multiculturalism. But more and more these days, I find myself kind of obsessing about economic inequality and just how, how like, where do you even start? Mm. I genuinely don't know, but yeah. I would really like someone to come up with those answers. <laughs> I oh, feel yeah. like I, I, I want to solve everything now, but we're not going to solve it. Your book is not about economic inequality entirely. <laughs> it is a really, really wonderful, as, as, the, as the subhead kind of says, like race, religion and feminism. It was really wonderful, but I like that we went off on this little tangent because yeah. it was really no, interesting. I <laughs> no, no, this is like, this is like, this, this we, is, the whole podcast, this is what worry. our podcast is like. And this is what our conversations in general are like. So 
I'm interested to talk about the power of language as well, because I know you talk about that in the book. As a writer, someone who can so eloquently express themselves with words in in English, how do you feel like it, it must be, I guess it is quite a privilege that we are able to use language the way that we do to, you know, further these things like social inequality and, and like um, racism and homophobia and stuff like that. Like we do have a lot of power in words. Yeah, I think it is pretty amazing. I feel really grateful that I came to Australia when I did. So I was three when we moved here. And I think that was fantastic because it made it a really easy path for me in terms of picking up English and feeling really confident in it. And whilst on some levels, it really annoys me that there's such this, there's such a supremacy of English um, globally as the key language that everyone needs to be able to speak. On one hand, I understand why that's useful, but it also kind of bothers me because I think it often creates a bit of a power dichotomy between people who can speak English really confidently as their native language and people who can't. Whilst, you know, acknowledging that as something that's problematic, I am really grateful that I'm really confident in English because it opens up so many doors. And I write in the book about how my Australian accent is in many ways my greatest armor against racism. When people hear me speak, they feel a lot more comfortable that I will be the kind of person that they're generally willing to engage with, which is your average Australian. You know, if I speak like this, then I probably have had similar experiences to them. And so therefore they don't have to worry about how far and I walk. And Which is so having wrong. To live with that, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's not. not it's, great. A no. thing, it's a weird thing to be grateful for, um, but I do feel grateful for it, even while being, you know, a little bit pissed off by it. I think that using language is a hundred percent a gift, and I think the power of language has been demonstrated. I mean, I can hear it in your voices when you talk about the books that you love. I've certainly had that experience. The things that have had the biggest influences on me and the biggest impacts have 100% been books that I've read. And I think there's something about that that is so magical and addictive. It feels like even if no one was reading my work, I couldn't not write for that reason because there's just so much potential in it. And I'm one of those people who will obnoxiously recommend like 100 books to anyone who allows me. Yeah. Again, literally what our whole podcast is about. Sitting in my study right now staring at like literally hundreds of books. Some of the most amazing conversations I've had and some of the best connections I've had with people have come from a shared love of a certain book. Thank you. Where can people find you online and follow? Yeah, I am on all of the social medias under Zoya J. Patel. Um, and I do have a website that I try and keep updated with events and things like that, which is just www.soya-patel.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Soya. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been an awesome chat. Yay. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.